KHEN is supported in part by Little Red Hen Bakery, located at 302 G Street in downtown Salida. Little Red Hen specializes in hometown fresh-baked bread, bagels, and treats, all made with organic and local ingredients. A full menu, including the wood-fired oven schedule and daily specials, can be found on their Facebook page at Little Red Hen Salida. K-Hen and Little Red Hen, just two hometown chickens working to keep Salida, Salida. K-Hen is supported in part by Hilltop Broadband. Hilltop Broadband for residential and business wireless internet service. Servicing Salida and Poncha Springs in Chaffee County, as well as areas in Fremont County, Custer County, and more. To experience the Hilltop difference and request new customer information, email info at hilltop-broadband.com or call toll-free 877-783-2889. Welcome, friends, to another edition of On the Rails. With me, your host, Forrest Whitman, here at KHEN 106.9 on your FM dial. Or if you want to go to podcasts, there's we got four years of podcasts there, including some podcasts with the esteemed person we're going to be interviewing this morning, James Subi. We're going to be interviewing him. But if you are an iTunes addict, if you go to iTunes right now, you'll you'll get uh, this interview with with uh, Jim Subi. Well, he's the chair of the Front Range Passenger Rail Commission. It is the successor to two earlier such commissions. Where well, I want to welcome him here to the old caboose. We've got the coal stove fired up here in the caboose. <clears throat> We're getting some warmth back here now. At the head end of this KHEN train is Rick White, our engineer. So, Rick, you want to say hi? Yeah, thank you for that, Forrest. Uh, looks like clear sailing. There's snow on the ground, but we're, it's clear sailing today. And I want to encourage your <laughs> listeners, if you have a train story, we want to hear about it. And you can contact Forrest at info at khen.org. There you go, Forrest. Jim is, is chair of this vast group. So, Jim, say a little about how, how many governmental bodies are there in this group now? We have a board of directors of 27 individuals, of which 17 represents county governments. Uh, Boards of commissioners, probably. and 17 of those, we have three railroads, the Amtrak, Union Pacific, and uh, Burlington Road and Santa Fe. Denver also has, uh, has two reps. Those governmental representatives are divided up uh, essentially based on population within their uh, transportation areas. So Denver has four, the Springs has two, Fort Collins has two, let's see, Pueblo has one, South Central Council of Governments has one. So that's the general tone of it. And so we have, uh, of those representatives, they're appointed by their county governments or their city governments, but they may uh, they may be currently elected or they may be formally elected, but they had to serve in an elected position to be appointed under our legislation. 
those details are, are really interesting to us uh, rail buffs. <clears throat> but I think the, the people who listen to this show, a lot of them are more saying, well, what's going on? Why can't we get some rail running along the front range? What's the trouble? That's the kind of thing. Or as our older listeners always say, well, why can't we get the cars back? Why can't we get the, the interurbans back that used to, you know, unite Canyon City, Pueblo, El Paso County, Denver in a big loop? And we did have those, but we don't anymore. It's extremely expensive to get highways widened anymore. The whole driving force behind this front range rail is really our population growth and the lack of expansion room for I-25. Another one of the major kind of uh, advantages of rail is it creates quite a bit of economic development, particularly around station stops. So it's both a uh, remedy to our congestion problems. It takes people a long time to move between cities now, particularly during rush hour. It's also a third important factor is that it's as expensive to expand highways now as it is to build a railroad. So we we learned that when they tried to improve the 18 miles between Colorado Springs and the south of Denver, Castle Rock, in that one area. And it cost, I can't remember exactly, but between 280 and $500 million just to add a lane. The footprint of that highway is now exhausted in the high traffic areas. So you would have to condemn property and expand the uh, right-of-way. All of this adds up to the fact that nationwide and here in Colorado, it's as as expensive now to expand the highway in a a lot of areas where we have the congestion problem as it is to build the rail system. So the big issue now is where does the funding come from? We have a gas tax. It hasn't been increased since 1992, as I recall. Our legislation allows us to impose a uh, sales tax. Of course, the voters would have to approve that. But we could raise revenue from a sales tax to build this railroad, a sales and use tax. It remains to be seen whether we're going to go to the voters or not. But I suspect we will have to. Almost every uh, passenger rail system in the nation has required uh, considerable state funding in order to get it built and operated. Once it's operating it's very conceivable that it may be able to pay for itself. But that acquisition and construction costs, just like with highways, are going to require public funding. A lot of it, too, I'm I'm sure. Those listeners who have called in and said, well, we used to have a real good interurban system. I think that's probably true, but how much did you pay? This one lady called in, she says, well, I remember when, when they raised it to 25 cents. And as we were screaming about that. So I said, so you could ride from, say, Canyon City, Colorado, to, say, Union Station, Denver, for a quarter. It's going to cost you a lot more than that to, to have a, an automobile and a four-lane highway. Well, that's another interesting point for us. Uh, it turns out, according to the American Automobile Association, owning a car costs you between $8,000 and $11,000 a year to the average car owner, and that may well have gone up. My God, the least expensive electric Tesla right now is, what, $42,000. So owning a vehicle and then paying vehicle taxes on it and maintaining it and uh, powering it, whether it's electricity or fuel or whatever you might be needing, is an extremely expensive proposition. Families often own more than one car, sometimes two or three cars. So, I mean, you're talking about a 
huge investment in automobiles and having a useful rail commuter system, inner city system, could reduce the need for one of those extra cars, could make it much more reliable, would make you not subject to congestion and weather and all the other problems that you face on the highway. So there are a lot of advantages to this, but the disadvantages are we have to find a way to publicly fund acquisition and construction of the railroad. So that's what this legislation provides an apparatus for, and that's what our board is going to be uh, considering. We've got a bunch of listener questions, and some of them are kind of naive in light of what you just said, but we, we try to answer every question on this show. So if you're game for them, let's, let's try a couple listener questions. That'll get us on our game here a little bit. And I haven't had my tea yet this morning, so I may be slow myself. But here's, here's one. I'm sure there are still trolley tracks from the old cars under the whole of Colfax Street, one end to the other in Denver. They're down there. Do you think? Well, you can see you can see them when they do construction on streets in Denver. No doubt about it. I haven't seen them recently, but when they've repaved a lot of streets. Now that's not a problem for my board of directors. That's a problem for the regional transportation district, which runs light rail and bus service. So we would not be inclined to get involved in the trolley system in Denver, where I live. We used to have a trolley turnaround. We have a park between the houses where I live in uh, suburban Denver, and there used to be a trolley turnaround in there. It's an artifact of when you used to have, a, you know, a very uh, extensive and very useful system. But we're an inner city system. We're running north and south. We're trying to help connect Colorado Springs to Pueblo to Denver up to Fort Collins via Boulder, Longmont, and all the other cities along the Front Range and all the way down to Trinidad eventually. So our goal is to offset and make it more convenient for people to move north and south. That's the direction the majority of our population moves when they're driving between communities, is north-south, and that's why I-25 was constructed in the first place. It's now reaching the end of its useful life in in a number of its areas. Not everywhere. Some in the rural areas, you still don't have extensive traffic, but we still think it would be useful to run our railroad up there, although construction of those extensions might take longer, for example, south of Pueblo. But they're part of our legislation and we're considering them. We also have a representative from the governments in the uh, I-70 corridor because uh, they're very interested in the east-west possibilities for rail. And while that might be in the future, they are a non-voting member, and they participate in our board deliberations. That's interesting, too, because, of course, that's your ski traffic. That's all your uh, recreational traffic. Most of it goes east-west. Of course, there is the ski train. That's about it for that, that I can think of right. for, as far as rails east or rails west. Well, the rails heading over toward Grand Junction go up through. Uh, they don't follow I-70 essentially, until much later, through up north of I-70, up through Winter Park, where our ski train delivers folks. And then they come back down to dot zero and rejoin the I-70 corridor. So the mountain passes are all an I-70 highway proposition. The rail tracks uh, don't run along I-70 in that area. So, And the reason is, simply when those railroads were constructed, they looked for the one of the biggest issues a railroad faces, whether it's passenger or freight, is the grade, the incline. 
how much power does it take to move a heavy train up a hill? So uh, railroads have always looked for the levelest, least inclined right of way, and that's what they built. And that's why it doesn't follow I-70. So the I-70 corridor will require, you know, some particularly interesting engineering responses. Although we're learning from Asia and Europe that uh, technology is now catching up with those requirements. So it's very conceivable to me that in the future we could construct some kind of a rail system. But it, again, will be very expensive because the right-of-way is narrow and a lot of engineering issues have to be dealt with, including things like possibly tunneling and other construction approaches that, uh, you know, they'll be expensive, but they'll be worthwhile or the people won't pay for them. That helps us reply to some of these listener questions. For instance, here's one. Why not just double the number of trains that go on the chief back and forth uh, right now? And that's an interesting question. I guess Amtrak could run a second chief. Uh, Yeah, that's under consideration. Uh, Congress has not been willing to fund expansion of Amtrak, with the exception of this last infrastructure bill. And uh, quite a bit of that money, I think uh, $66 billion went into rail. I think $12 billion went into improving Amtrak service. But Amtrak's way behind the curve. Their equipment needs to be replaced. They just are now purchasing new engines. The engines pulling those Amtrak trains until just recently were 30 and 40 years old. They're now purchasing new, higher technology, more efficient engines. But all of that's extremely expensive. And their passenger cars, I don't think they've had, I can't remember the details on this for us, but I, I believe they haven't had a new passenger car on these long distance trains in 20 or 30 years. So they've been refurbishing them. But, you know, eventually these, these even train cars eventually wear out. Obviously, they last a lot longer than, say, airplanes and things like that. But nevertheless, it's expensive. So Amtrak's trying to restore its service up to at least what it was providing before the pandemic with this new money they're receiving. But they do have a new program, and FRA, Federal Railroad Administration, has a new program to look at new corridor service. And that's what we would be providing. Remember, the uh, Southwest Chief runs east-west through southeastern Colorado. And our commission and our legislation uh, directs us to attempt to connect with that line. We raised over $100 million to keep that line in Colorado and get it improved over the past uh, eight years. And those last improvements are now going into the line. But we'll connect with that train. We propose that Amtrak reroute the train through Pueblo so that it would come from La Junta up to Pueblo and then back down to Trinidad. Amtrak's not fond of that idea, nor are the freight railroads that the train would run over because they have other traffic on that and would have to, it would be expensive to improve that line. But from our point of view, it would make our front range rail proposition even that much more likely. So politically, we're support, very supportive of having that reroute of the Southwest Chief. But once again, remember, it's running from Chicago to LA. It's heading east-west generally, down through the Southwest. And it doesn't deal with our front range issues. And it might alleviate them to some extent if in fact it were rerouted to Pueblo. But our goal is to get our passenger service running up and down the front range. And a good goal it is. And- Certainly our callers here at KHEN on at On the Rails, they understand that we're going to have to talk about big money. And some of them are concerned about, we have one, what would a depression bring? 
would low-priced rail buses eventually replace many cars if the depression got that bad? In other words, they're saying, would we be back to the old intercity transit cars? Just a little uh, few seats? Well, not a few seats. A lot of seats, maybe. Well, those, yeah, those cars would carry 66 or 70 people. I mean, and they were self-propelled. In other words, they had a diesel engine powering electric motors on their trucks. And they were very popular. And for their era, they were very efficient. They're not quite as efficient now compared to new technology. And we're talking about, you know, lighter weight, stronger materials and things like that. But nevertheless, you know, we, we have not even begun to consider what our actual train cars would look like, whether they'll be self-prepared. You know, I mean, our initial view is it would probably be much more affordable for us to be staying a little more traditional. In other words, with an engine and passenger cars, possibly acquired and refurbished, whatever. But none of those decisions have been made yet. And so I'm being very speculative even to raise it. And we could easily end up with some kind of new version of those old uh, inner city RDCs to get between city. That's, to me, a, a very conceivable possibility. But we're way before that. We have to complete three major studies in order to be able to even ask the people to support publicly this rail. And probably the most important one is, noted, is known as a service development plan. All the requirements for that are laid out very clearly by the Federal Railroad Administration. And that requires us not necessarily to formally conclude how we would build this railroad, but to propose to the voters and to the FRA and to any federal grantors and to the Congress and to our own legislature exactly the kind of service we would intend to run and how long it would take to get it fully operational and how many trains would run between what cities and all this. That service development plan also would require us to estimate what the cost might be, including contingencies to make sure that we don't run into problems that other railroad development projects run into, you know, when they tried to low cost it and then realized later through inflation and unforeseen issues, they suddenly have to pay a lot more than they anticipated. And so we want to make sure that whatever we propose to uh, our federal state and our public funders, our voters, that we actually give them a, a very square and accurate estimate of what this may cost. And that would, by the way, would include what kind of equipment we would see, provide the best service and all. So that we have that plan underway. We've uh, enlisted a contractor who's very familiar with development of rail service development projects. They have it underway. We're doing that project in cooperation with the uh, Colorado Department of Transportation. And... Uh, we hope to have a lot of those answers developed in the next two years. Beyond that, then we have to do a financing plan. Now, quite a bit of that will be within the service development plan, but we have to break that out and make sure that financing, the risk assessment and everything else connected with the, how we would finance this operation is very clearly understood so the public can decide if they want to help pay for it. And then we also have to have an operating plan which would again be based on the service development plan, but it's another legislative requirement. We would break that out and try to provide a very clear picture to the voters and to the legislature and to the Congress about how this service would actually run and operate. So those three requirements are in our legislation. We can't get federal money without carrying out the service development plan. And then beyond that, Forrest, we have to comply with the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. 
and we have to make sure that we don't, or if we do have environmental impacts, we have to demonstrate how we're going to mitigate them. That's a federal requirement or we won't be able to get any funding and we won't even be able to pick a route without that because we'll surely wow. be having environmental impacts uh, to some extent. That's a huge response to that question. You know what? Oh, we're almost out of time. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're still back here in the old caboose attempting to answer some of these questions. And that was a, a long and very thorough response there from uh, Jim Subi, who is the chair of the Front Range and Passenger Rail uh, Commission, which is responsible for coming up with these mammoth reports that he's just describing to us. Let's say goodbye to this segment and let's come back and see what are we talking about? What are the possibilities? All right. Okay. Let's say a quick highball and head out of here. Count of three. One, two, three. Highball. 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 There we go. Cahen is sponsored in part by Soulcraft Brewing, Salida's hometown brewery, offering a large selection of traditional and seasonal craft beers. Their spacious patio features cozy fire pit tables for outdoor warmth on chilly days. Fresh food is served daily at the Soul Shack food truck, featuring snacks like wings and pretzels, and full meals like sandwiches, burgers, and a delicious brunch on Sunday. Soulcraft is open daily for happy hour, lunch, and dinner.